Hey, Three Crosses family, and welcome back to the podcast. My name is Pastor AJ. I oversee life groups and discipleship, and we are continuing our Explore God series. We're having conversations every Wednesday night to go deeper on the Sunday sermon topic. And so if you haven't joined us yet, feel free to join us and visit threecrosses.church slash explore God. Submit your questions and join in on the conversation. Today, we're wrestling with the question, can one religion have all the answers? We got a great conversation in store for you. And so with that, let's go deeper. All right. How are y'all doing? Did you have a good dinner? How many of you had enjoyed the dinner tonight? Not everyone had the dinner. It's $5. I mean, come on. You can't beat that. Um, we're so glad that you're here. Uh, last week, uh, my name is Ryan. I'm actually, I'm going to do this right now because I will forget if I wait any longer. My name is Ryan Suzuki. I'm one of the pastors here. And I'm going to let everyone down the line introduce themselves, kind of what they do. Go for it. Patty. Uh, Patty Crone, new on staff here in the areas of care and equipping. Uh, my name is Max. I am one of the pastors here as well. I'm focused on our college-age community. And I am Randy, also one of the pastors. My area is with senior adults. So we got to tackle the question this week. Uh, if you were here on Sunday, how many of you were here on Sunday? Don't worry, I'm not going to single you out and call you out or anything like that. We got to tackle the question. Danny got, Pastor Danny got to tackle the question. Um, can one religion have all the answers? And probably none of you were surprised to learn that the answer, his answer was, yes, one religion can have all the answers, and we believe that religion is Christianity. And he went about kind of going about that argument, looking at this kind of, this old uh, kind of way of like looking at the world of the elephant. And there's a bunch of blind people looking at an elephant. The elephant would be God, the blind people are the folks searching for the truth. And all these blind people are around the elephant, they're feeling on its legs or its side or its trunk or its ears, and they're describing these different things about the elephant. And the kind of argument would go that all, like, no one can really see all of God, no one can really know all of God, the complexities of God, but all these different religions, these different faiths, these different worldviews, these different people, they all have something to offer. They have something to offer about our understanding of God. And while that argument seems really nice, it seems really helpful, it seems like really peaceful and all these different things, it really ultimately kind of falls apart in a couple different ways. One, it's not quite as humble as it might first seem because even that argument presumes that someone sees the whole thing. Someone can see the elephant, maybe the person making the argument, but it presumes that someone knows the whole picture, which on the one hand, that's what all the major religions, all these religions are claiming anyway. All, these, all the religions of the world, all these kind of faiths and worldviews are trying to explain ultimate meaning, the person of who God is, what, his, what the nature of God or the divine is. And so really it's presuming what all these religions are presuming in the first place. So it's not quite as humble as it first seems. The second part is it's logically uh, incompatible with itself. So Danny talked about, and I, I know many of us in this panel have had the same exact experience, like when you go and speak, if I were to go and speak with someone of a different faith, if I went and spoke with a rabbi or an imam uh, or a priest, we'd all find ways where, we're, where we actually have differences. And I would say like in all the conversations like Danny kind of shared that I've ever had with leaders, of the, leaders in different faiths, like kind of like pastors of a different faith, we're all very comfortable with the fact that we believe something different that at the end of the day, there's something incompatible about our faith, that the tenets of our faith actually can't, there's some mutually exclusive truth claims that happen. You might think about God as like a, div like a divine spirit, just like it's the spirit of the divine that inhabits all of us. It's an impersonal force. Well, Christianity, the monotheistic religions like Islam, Judaism, Christianity, believe that there's not, that's actually not what, who God is. God is a personal God, a God that can be known. He has a personality and a personhood. He's not just, it's, God is not just a divine spirit that's kind of out there inhabiting all of us. And so we look at that, so we look at that argument that really it doesn't quite work, and you're left with the idea that either kind, that perhaps all religions are wrong, there is no God, or they are all missing everything, or one of those religions 
is right. And so on, at the end of the day, we keep coming back to this idea that at some point, as we're even, this is kind of, we call this kind of thing apologetics, where we're trying to give an answer uh, to these questions of the faith and the questions that people might have. But at the end of the day, there's always this moment in an act of faith. And that's in anything and everything that we do. Like I was thinking, even thinking about like the scientific method and things like that. Like there's an act of faith, the scientific method itself is tried and true, it's proven all these different things, but the kind of philosophy behind the scientific method is not in itself testable. There's an act of faith that we're doing there. And so with any of these things, there's this act of faith and Danny went on to talk about the distinctives of Christianity, of the Christian worldview, of the person of Jesus Christ and how it makes sense of this world and how it brings a what we believe is a credible and good answer for why we're here, what our purpose is, and how we are to go about living a life that pleases God. So that's where we started. Did I, Patty, you're in my panel, I'm gonna ask, did I miss it? Am I missing something huge here? I'm getting a lot of looks of no, so I'm gonna take that. And some of you might have more questions. So uh, one of the first things I wanted to ask, we always like to start off with, oh, sorry, even before that, I wanted to just point, Patty pointed something out before we started. Um, we started week one, if so, those of you who have been with us the entire time, uh, week one was actually before we started the series, kind of like an orientation. But we really started with this idea that God invites our questions, that God wants us, like he's not afraid of the questions that we have. He's not intimidated by them in any way. So, and I, and I just want to say thank you, even in this space, like we've had a lot of good questions. We've had a lot of We've had some pushback, we've had some agreement, we've had some questions that have been asked, and that's the appropriate time for, and place for that, because we have a God that invites those things. We have people like Nicodemus who came to Jesus and had all sorts of questions. We have all sorts of Psalms where people are just, or King David, or King, or various Psalm writers, Psalmists are asking God like really big, heavy question, and God invites that. So I wanna just thank you for being a part of that and just continue to invite that. But uh, anyone like wanted to share, like it could be a question that came up, it could be something that just struck you. What's something, put your hand up. We got a couple of them last week. What's God been doing, starting you? And Eric will come over to you. My name is Cassie. Hi, Cassie. Hello. Tell us what uh, a question or something that you had that God's been starting you. Um, what would be a good way to bring someone that's really close to you, like say my husband that is from a different religion, mm -hmm. um, into Christianity without being um, like too pressuring? Yeah. And um, yeah, just being more open to hearing his side as well. And he's Mormon, and mm -hmm. so just learning the differences between Mormon and Christianity. That way, yeah. I can um, rebuttal all of his points. And it really does go, I'm going to kind of link it to one of the questions that we actually got asked tonight, talking about like this kind of difference that Danny brought up of how do we go humbly before someone and share our faith? Like we believe as Christians that we do have the truth. We believe in Jesus' claims that he's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And yet, like Jesus, we don't want to come with arrogance. We come with humility and gentleness. So yeah, maybe sort of you could talk about like what that might look like, how helping Cassie or someone like her, um, sharing the faith with someone? Um, I would say it's important to start with what you have in common with someone rather than starting right off the bat on the places that you disagree with each other. So if you know enough about the Mormon faith too, and there's some similarities, they believe in Jesus and, and so forth. So you might start with that you know, help me to understand a little bit about what you believe. And then that sort of lowers the defensive barrier um, that you're not trying to argue, you're not trying to prove anything, you're just trying to inquire, um, how can you help me to understand what you believe? And then if he's willing to reciprocate and let you express what you believe, then you've got a dialogue started without getting into a confrontation. I feel like that's like just a that's a valuable tactic and a valuable kind of mindset to go into any of these things whether it's you're going to have encounters with people that believe nothing that don't believe in God and it's great like there's still commonalities that we share like maybe a desire for um for harmony between people and or whatever that is or to have meaning and purpose and fulfillment in life and when you start with that that place of a posture of humility and I feel like what I'm hearing too really is like just the willingness and the desire to learn about someone, not to just, hey, here's what I've got. Let me impose this thing on you. But I want to hear, I want to understand, like be, having a curiosity, having interest 
and a curious spirit is going to go a long way. And make it as genuine a yes. curiosity as possible, yes. not a, I'm going to pretend to be curious because I want to prove you wrong. Mm -hmm. But if you can truly be curious about what he believes, then he's going to be more willing to op open up and share honestly rather than defensively. Yeah, and just mention the passage about wives being married to an unbeliever. And, and, and in Corinthians 7, Paul talks about if a, if a man is married to an unbeliever. So this goes both ways. Um, what happens when we are in that home with somebody who doesn't believe is that our very presence brings holiness into the home. It's really crazy. If you look at the Old Testament, um, you see God asking uh, those who are unequally yoked to separate but in the New Testament, he says, if, if a spouse is willing to stay with you, if it's a healthy relationship in every other way, if a spouse is willing to stay with you, stay, you actually make them holy. So in the Old Testament, you would be contaminated by being with a non-believer. But in the New Testament, because we have the Spirit of God, we actually bring a holiness into the home, which is super cool. And it helps us then kind of look at that other passage that Max was mentioning, too, about Peter, about winning others without a word that um, you, can, you can rest in that God is using your very presence and how you relate to your child and how you live out your faith in front of your husband is more powerful than you, you can know. And that helps you be a little more relaxed to ask the questions, to be curious. Um, and I love what Randy's saying. We would want an unbeliever. We would want an unbe we would want to tell an unbeliever or a, a Mormon or, or a Muslim. We would want to say, "This is this is what you believe," and they say, "Yes, you are listening." And what we might find out when we ask questions too, to Randy's point, is that while he may ascribe to Mormonism, there may be lots of things about Mormonism he doesn't believe. He, you may have even more in common than you even know. He may actually be looking for Jesus and in through Mormonism. And so anyway, just the two pieces of you are bringing holiness and you are a presence because of the spirit of God in you. And isn't that beautiful to get to just rest in that? But then also um, it also frees you to to then ask the questions, be curious, and then watch for the space where his own faith doesn't isn't quite consistent. Because every other faith system breaks down. So then you just start watching. You know, is there something more you would want from your faith? You can ask questions like that. But, but knowing and him knowing that you know what he believes to the point where you can describe it and he would say, you know my faith better than I do is, is, a really, is a really powerful thing. So I hope that's an encouragement to you. And I love your question and your heart for your husband. And it's beautiful. Um, one, I was just thinking about someone, uh, and this could be, you know, a, uh, a spouse or a child or a friend or something like that. Someone reminded me tonight, um, just we, we believe in a God that can do the impossible. We believe a God that can move hearts and change his minds and does all these different things. And so the power of prayer is one thing. And I was just thinking about an experience I had at the church I was just at previously at Community Presbyterian Church in Danville. Uh, I was doing a membership class and there was a guy in there and he was in, a, ma a man in there, he was in his mid 80s and he and his wife were joining the church or he was joining the church, his wife was already a member of the church. And I just remember was struck like he was, we just asked this question about kind of what's your story, what brought you here? And he, with tears in his eyes, talked about how he had just given, like within the last nine months had given his heart to the Lord. His wife had been coming to CPC, uh, our church for years and years, decades and she shared how she'd been praying for her husband for 40 years. She'd been praying for 40 years that he'd come to sit and know Christ. And he had done it that year. And I, got, I had the privilege of, I mean, we're, it was, this is a Zoom call. We're all in. He's in tears. We're all in tears in our, the comfort of our own homes. Uh, and, uh, and I got the privilege of baptizing him a couple months later. And so, like, there's that part, like, listening, praying being persistent, like God is a God of the supernatural and does these incredible, miraculous things. And so even to ask that question, to have a heart for someone that you love, just I just want to affirm that and just um, God will do, God can and will do amazing things. And, and I know there's people in this room, you've got a child that you want to, that you want them to know Christ. You've got a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, a classmate, someone that you want, like, man, if this person knew, I want them to know Jesus so bad. Like there's maybe one of, someone in this room too, where it's like, I want you to know Jesus real bad. And I know that God's going to keep working and, and stirring in your heart. The other one quick thing, if that's okay, if I can add Please. one more um, little bit of encouragement. I love that you're here. 
Um, working with a lot of women, often what I find is when, especially with women, maybe it happens with men too, I've just noticed it more with women that when they are married to someone who doesn't share their faith, they'll sometimes slow down their own growth because they're afraid of what will happen to the marriage. And I just want to affirm you that the more you're like Christ, the better, and that you're here, even if he's not here with you, I think it's really stunning. So a question that was submitted is, if God is good, why is there so much suffering in the world? And we will be addressing um, this in terms of eternal um, separation from God, hell, on Sunday. So be sure to be there, and we'll talk a little bit more next week about this. But as we thought about this question, we thought, this is a great question to relate to, can one religion have all the answers? Because something that's very distinct about Christianity is how Christianity addresses suffering in the world. It is very, very unique. I'm going to use my cheat sheet so I don't get tripped up because I can tend to do that, especially after six o'clock at night. But in a moralistic worldview, uh, like karma, like Hinduism, suffering is caused by wrongdoing. Our response is to do good, and the resolution is eternal bliss. Um, From a self-transcendent perspective, Buddhism, suffering is an illusion. Our response is detachment, to pretend it's not happening, and the resolution is enlightenment. In a fatalistic worldview like Islam, the cause of suffering is destiny, the response is endurance, and the resolution is glory and honor. In a dualistic worldview, the cause of suffering is a cosmic conflict, the response is a purified faithfulness, and the resolution is light, the triumph of light. And then we have atheism, a secular worldview. Suffering is an accident and there's no meaning. One thing that the major religions of the world do have in common is that suffering has some sort of meaning. But in atheism, there is no meaning to suffering. Um, It doesn't mean anything at all. Our response to avoid suffering at all costs is to minimize the discomfort as much as possible. And of course, we all suffer, so suffering actually wins. So the weaknesses of these worldviews, we can see them and we want to look at them in contrast to Christianity. The Christian answer is that suffering is real, but when it's faced rightly, there can be purpose to it. Suffering is inevitable. God promises we will suffer. Jesus promised in John 16, 33, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. In fact, we look at scripture from Genesis to Revelation and God's favorite people suffer the most. But what we also know is that we are offered a spiritual afterlife and a renewed world by a a God who has chosen to enter into suffering and to suffer with us and then suffer for us. Christianity is unique in that we have a God who is willing to, I think it's Dorothy Sayers that says, for whatever, um, he's willing to take his own medicine. Yes, he has created a world that has allowed suffering, but he is a God who's willing to take his own medicine in that Jesus has come and he has suffered anything and everything you and I will ever suffer. He is, can now relate to us in our suffering. And then he suffered for us, though perfect, to redeem our suffering. So it, Christianity is the only faith in which, Christ, in which suffering is actually redemptive, that not only good comes out of it, but we have a presence and a savior with us in it who knows exactly what it is like to suffer and has promised us that suffering will end because of his suffering and death, we will, we will enter an eternal life where there is no more tears, no more dying, no more death, no more divorce, no more disease, no more devastation, no more anything, no more tears, where God himself will wipe that very last tear. So the distinctions between all other beliefs or non-beliefs and Christianity is pretty, pretty significant. Uh, yeah, and one of the things like is kind of we're trying to figure out a little bit of what Daniel said. So we've learned a little bit about suffering and the ways that different religions and worldviews handle suffering. But back to even like the Christian worldview and that kind of experience, and one of the things that we're going to look to our panel, all of you, and it's just thinking about like how, how have you seen that actually play out? Danny talked a lot at the end of our time on Sunday about like here's what the Christian worldview is. But I think most of us, like when you're in this kind of shepherding pastoral ministry that all of us are in, you have these modes, like you get into 
you are there with people in their suffering. I mean, of course, all of us have had times of suffering in our lives, and all of us have been with people that suffer. But I think for you, you, all, you all in ministry, just think about, like, how have you seen the redemptive purposes of God in the midst of that? How have you actually seen God's handiwork and, like, his, this kind of world, the Christian view of suffering actually play out in people's lives and in your own? I'll say something because I haven't talked yet. So Yeah, you, you're, um, you're on. <laughs> I guess what I'm drawn to, um, the words of a guy, his name's Jerry Sitzer. He was a pastor, professor, um, someone who in a car accident lost his mother, spouse, and his youngest child. So three generations of his family in a accident, you know, um, and... So he wrote a book about grief and loss. And one of his claims in the book is that he says that the soul is enlarged or by grief and loss. In that just its capacity to grow, thrive, rejoice um, is in fact grown instead of reduced by the experience of loss. And I remember reading that. And um, I was in a class, kind of a, it was like a basic counseling skills class. And uh, they gave us this book, and I read that, and I was like, oh, that's it's very interesting. You know, I um, haven't really experienced much, you know, loss in my life, really. And uh, I think maybe it was just four months after I read that book. I was maybe 24. Um, my wife's father was killed in a work accident. Uh, just kind of instantly lost his life. And uh, I had been married for maybe two, no, maybe it was maybe three or four years at that point. And uh, my wife's dad, loving father, provider for the family, the prime of his life, um, all of a sudden was gone. And um, it was a devastating time, uh, comforting my wife uh, and the family just kind of those days, if you've experienced traumatic loss yourself, you just kind of live in a haze for a prolonged period of time. And um, I was just kind of plunged into this discussion of what happens when we experience grief and loss. And maybe a year after that, I was a pastor to youth at that time, and one of my youth was diagnosed with stage four ovarian cancer. And uh, she passed away at the age of 21 years old and after her own father had died of cancer maybe seven years previous. And um, again, just kind of not only on this journey of grief, but as her friend walking on the journey of grief with her. And um, a lot of things transpired. I'm not just going to tell my life story. But um, as I think back on it now and I think about the person that I am today, I feel I really have experienced the truth of that statement, that my ability to experience the fullness of, of life, you know, human flourishing, maybe as God intends it to be, has been expanded um, because of grief and loss and specifically the hope that is offered through the distinctly Christian vision of the purpose of suffering or how it can be redeemed. So um, I think back on that as um, just really an incredible encounter with God, you know, of hearing this statement just kind of literally in a classroom setting and thinking, oh, that's interesting, <laughs> you know, and then really being plunged into it myself and really clinging to it like a life preserver, like, I hope this is true. Otherwise, I'm going to be lost in an ocean of suffering yeah. that I may never return from, you know. And um, I was telling Ryan earlier that when you speak to pain, uh, someone told me this a long time ago, you always have an audience, you know, because we talk about human suffering. I think that's why this person asked that question. It's, it's, a universal part of the human experience. You know, no person is spared from disappointment, from loss, from discouragement, ending in our own death and the death of everybody we care about. Yeah. You know, that's the human experience. And so is there a vision for life that can 
redeem and give meaning to the, at times, unfathomable magnitude of suffering that we experience, we see in the world around us. Yeah. I think for, on the, I mean, undoubtedly, we all suffer, um, some more than others. And most of the faith systems of the world acknowledge that there is suffering. I think, you know, the why of suffering, I think, is important. Um, and I think the Bible addresses that very point, the why of suffering. Suffering, um, the Christian Bible teaches us, is the result of uh, an act of free will, which was the unique gift that God gave to humans that was not given to any of the rest of creation, that we were given the opportunity to choose whether we would follow his directives or not. And right out of the gate, he gave us the consequence if we made the choice not to obey him, and that was that we would die. And not only that we would die, but later on after we see that Adam and Eve made that choice um, and that death would ultimately come to them, but also a part of the consequence or the curse, if you want to call it that, was that we would suffer. Um, Adam would work with this, by the sweat of his brow to grow food from the earth and woman would experience pain in childbirth. And so there is an element of suffering that goes along with the curse of death. So that's kind of the why of, of suffering. But I think the unique message that we have in the Christian faith that other faith systems do not have, and Patty, you touched on this earlier, is that in our faith, the God who we trust and believe in, we love because he entered in to the experience of suffering himself. Um, it's not just we who suffer, but he himself suffers. Um, he has borne our sorrow. He has carried our grief. He has experienced our pain to a degree that none of us has ever experienced, nor will we ever experience. So the unique message that I think our faith gives us is that God is with us in our suffering. And not only is he with us, he knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to be abandoned by the one who is closest to him, his father in heaven, who turned his face from him when he was on the cross. And he knows the, 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 the experience of physical suffering to the nth degree um, as he hung on the cross in our place. So God enters into our suffering. He experienced the curse of sin that was intended for us but he took on himself and in exchange gives us the hope of eternal life. Yeah, one of those uniquenesses about Christianity that we're, we believe our God suffered, that he's not just absent and kind of distant and out there and up in heaven and all, it's all good, it's all perfect. It's all, he humbled himself, taking on the form of, servant, of the servant, even to death on a cross. And I just thought about even as you've all been talking about these different things, one of my favorite verses is Romans 8, 28, which says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And I just think about that statement, all things. God works all things together for the good of those who love him. I've told, so, so, I don't know if I've said this on stage, but I experienced the other, a few years ago, I had a seizure, but I thought I was having a stroke. And so I thought, you know, my wife, I was with my wife. And so both of us thought I was dying. And there was something like, there was a great, peace in my, like there's a great fear, you know, and you're just, you think like this might be the end. And there's also a great peace. I knew that I felt a conviction about what I believed about God to be true. I experienced the goodness of God. I experienced the, the goodness of the relationship he's given me. I, I just knew that my wife, Jess, would just, she's going to be fine, that God's going to be with her. And now I get, also get the joy. Like God even worked that weird, traumatic, strange experience. It's brought great joy to my life. It's brought great peace to my life. It's brought, brought closeness to my life. I shared in a message a couple months ago that one of my, one of the, and I think most of us could probably speak to this, um, can relate to this, like probably the most sacred thing that I ever get to be a part of is to be with someone on their deathbed. And I've been able to do it 
several times. And I just think about, I know one that Randy, you and I are probably there together years ago. Um, a man named Doug Foxworthy. You probably know Austin Foxworthy. He's our family's pastor. His dad had uh, terminal pancreatic cancer, and we went to go pray with him as just a team. We'd pray for him, read scripture with him, sing some songs with him, sing some like, hymns and, and some praise choruses. And I remember we gathered around him to pray. And it's just like, we're there to pray for this man who's suffering. I mean, he was, he was near death. He was weeks from death. And he, you, you tend to look the part when that happens. And we were gathered around him praying for him. And I just remember uh, at one point, like, we're praying for him. And all of a sudden, like, he starts grabbing each one of us. Like, just, I was struck with the strength of him, his strength, even as he was weakened by treatment and by the ravages of cancer and just prayed for us. And I remember him praying for my, my wife. I don't think I even had kids yet. He prayed for my kids, or at least he, you know, he prayed for my family. He prayed for what, how God would uh, work in me. And I just thought, what a redemptive thing. Like he knows he's near death. He also knows he's near returning to, to his heavenly father. He knows that he, he knows, he believes, he trusts that he's actually going to, we're going to spend time together. He's going to see his sons. He's going to see his wife. He's going to see his grandkids in glory. And there was something so redemptive that even in this moment of his greatest need, that what God had done, like even God was working all these things for the good of those who love him, that he was able to do these things. And I just feel like there's something about this faith that we have that can take this man on his deathbed and say, like, actually, I want to bring a benefit. I want to bring a blessing. I want to bring goodness to those around me. Um, yeah. So I want to, like, is it okay if I push back a little? Please. So what do you do when you are sitting with somebody at a deathbed and they are um, not able to, to receive mm. this? Or you're sitting across from somebody and they're, they're saying, I, I think su suffering is just, I hear what you're saying, right. but I'm, I mean, I guess that humility question that Danny was, or that humility comment that Danny had about religions, I think applies to this area of suffering. How do we, how do we approach people who are not ready to hear? I mean, maybe a deathbed's not the best yeah. example because you got to go forward on that. But how do people who who are not ready to hear a message that God was willing to suffer? They're yeah. they're just in a place of pain. And um, how do we move towards how do we move towards those? Well, I think you know at that time I was referencing earlier, I came across a scripture. I can't. I think it's Psalm 118, maybe, um, where it talks about God is near to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. And there's times when we're suffering and grappling with the reality of suffering in the world that that's how we feel. We feel brokenhearted. We feel crushed. And um, that I think in those moments, just this idea of God's nearness, you know, if we're talking in contrast to other world religions, as Ryan was kind of alluding to, that it's often God is far away, unapproachable, you know, and uh, maybe that through my good effort, I can reach that at some point in the future, but I'm not there now. I'm in the darkness of my suffering, you know, and I think something that's unique about the Christian conception of suffering is God's nearness. He's dealt ultimately with suffering and brokenness in the world, and that's part of the promise of God's, the fulfillment of his plan, right, of no more tears, wipe, all of that stuff, but also in the now promising his nearness and even in the witness of the scriptures there saying that he's especially near when we're hurting, you know, and that there's times where maybe we're overwhelmed by our pain and it's difficult to experience that, but um, I think that that is a unique comfort of the Christian worldview is that um, it's a vision of a God who draws near to us. Sometimes, you know, in some visions that, you know, suffering is, um, <clears throat> it's a result of um, something bad that we've done. You know, you're suffering. And this, in fact, I was reading about uh, Job and his friends, you know, in, uh, in the Old Testament, that they kind of come to him and go, hey, you, all this bad stuff must have happened to you because you did something bad. So, like, ask for forgiveness. Say, say sorry, you know, so that your suffering can end. And we even see that in the New Testament. Like, you know, why was this person born blind? Why are they suffering? It's like, you must have done something wrong or your parents must have done something wrong. And um, to just kind of have that recognizing 
that our suffering doesn't mean that we're cursed, you know, but in this Christian view, God draws near to people who are suffering, who other people might say, oh, you must be cursed because something bad happened to you. You know, this, this God is moving toward us when we're hurting, when we're dealing with suffering and with pain. And, um, you know, maybe we're not in a place to hear a lecture, a sermon, theological truth, but to just know that if, if what this is saying is true, then this God is, he's maybe even closer than my own skin in this moment because he sees that I'm hurting and he's coming near to me to help. Or he may be close in your skin to this person. And so as they experience your closeness, they experience God's closeness. So what I have, it, what has happened with me on occasion when I've been visiting someone in the hospital who is terminally ill, who is more resistant to the faith, um, it's not often that people will refuse to, to allow you to pray for them. And so I will sometimes ask, is it okay if I pray for you? And most of the time people agree to let me pray for them. And so in my prayer, I would ask God to draw near to them. Um, and I may even quote, you know, God is near to the brokenhearted, to those who are crushed in spirit. And I think that there is power in God's word. And I think there's also power in our prayer. So an argument from me, maybe not, not in the tone of an argument, but a statement from me that God is here and that he's close to you, they might push back on that. But as they hear us pray for them, that God would be close to them and affirm the truth that God is near to the brokenhearted, even to the brokenhearted who don't acknowledge him, he is near to them. So if, if we affirm that truth in prayer, then perhaps God is doing something supernatural in their spirit to sort of lower the guard a little bit and to allow some of the nearness of his presence to approach them. And most people, I found, don't refuse to let you pray for them in these times of crisis. And I think it's important, as I think through my own journey and journey with others, that even as believers, we know this truth that the world is, there is misery and that we will all suffer and yet we're still surprised. None of us are like, oh, expected that. Everybody as a believer, one thing I can say we all have in common is that when suffering hits us, we're surprised. Even though Peter tells us not to be, we're gonna be surprised. And we will make sense of it in some way. So I'm thinking about for me, when suffering hit hard, I thought, I was being punished and that I was searching for sin that I must have done wrong. So we're all trying to make sense of it. We may blame ourselves or we may blame God, but I think what really was powerful for me were the people who just sat and cried with me and then asked me, what, what do you need from me? And sometimes I did want them, tell me the truth, tell me the truth. And sometimes I just wanted them to pray. And sometimes I wanted them to just be quiet. Sometimes I wanted them to go home, um, if I'm honest, right? But I think we need to be realistic that even as believers, we're surprised by suffering. And we will try to make sense of it. We will turn to some sort of prosperity gospel in the midst of suffering. I can see that I've seen the strongest, people who have the strongest faith in the intellectually, really wrestle when suffering hits. And I think that's, that's okay. It, it, the process is what enlarges our hearts, right? So me working through the process of whether I had done something wrong actually took me to the heart of God. And, and I had people in my life that let me do that, like the psalmist, let me wrestle that out, not alone, but let me wrestle it out and were patient with me. So anyway, so I was just kind of wanting to get more ideas from all of you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. In, in, a, in, in discussions ministering to other people, uh, non-believers, they'll say, how can there be so much evil in the world? Uh, you say that it's a loving God. Uh, you know, you, you say, you know, God is love. You know, John 4.16. Uh, how can God be so loving and allow us to suffer with so much evil? 
I've yet to meet a really good person, right? I mean, when we get down to it, if, if because what the per perfection is what's required, right? Absolute goodness, um, because that's what it was prior to the fall. It was absolute goodness. But after the fall, that was contaminated. Um, and there is, now there is, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? So this is what our faith teaches us, that we are all in need of forgiveness and salvation and grace from God. I think part of this too, we're gonna to talk a little bit about this on Sunday. So I wanna not, I'm gonna be a little bit careful not to step on too many, too much of what uh, Austin Payne's gonna be talking about on Sunday when we talk about, we talk about how does a good God send people to hell, which is kind of addresses some of these questions because you're wondering, what does that look like? I mean, yeah, to Randy's point, we talk about sin entering this world. On the other hand, even when we're talking about suffering, I think all of us have also, we can relate to this, suffered because we made a poor decision, right? So um, yeah, I'm presently okay. suffering. My toe hurts really bad because I was playing soccer on Monday and I kicked a wall by accident. So I'm suffering as a result of a decision I made or I might make a bad decision. I say something uncharitable to my wife or to my kids and then they're mad at me. Like I have produced that suffering for myself. But I think what you're saying too is like, sometimes we're the victim and we're suffering. We think about what's happening in, uh, over in the Middle East, in Israel, like in the Gaza Strip and things like that. And we know there are people there that are innocent of the whatever crime there is or whatever uh, uh, political dispute. They may be innocent of that. And we're wondering, like, what does that look like? What does that mean? How does God allow that? A really great resource um, is Tim Timothy Keller's written a book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. First half is all apologetics, and he compares the world religions and thinkings um, and philosophies, um, and then then goes into more of a, uh, of a of a deeper dive into Christianity. And he brings out that very thing that there are four different kinds of categories of suffering, and and the the most troubling is unexplained. And I think that's kind of where you're going to is is it's not because somebody did something bad to me, it's not because I did something bad to them, it's um, it's not it's be, I don't know like Job, and Job never got to know. And that can be the most painful place to be um, in, into your question when, when we were walking through the beginning stages of our, our daughter's devastating diagnosis. Um, I actually had a friend reject God over what we were suffering. That was devastating to me. She said, if this is what God does to his people, if he does this to someone who's faithful to him, I don't want anything to do with him. And exactly. she walked away from exactly. her faith. She walked away from her faith, but she's self-destructed by walking away from her faith, which is super fascinating, a whole nother conversation. She would not trust this God. Instead of staying close to me and watching what God was going to do through Aubrey's life um, and how he was going to enlarge my heart and change me, she instead rejected God and moved away from from wanting, getting to see what God does do, because we do have to wrestle with this. Again, God's favorite people suffered the most. Job was a righteous man. Um, and yet there is something, it, it's not that he's, I, I had to learn, it wasn't that he was picking on me, it's that he chose me. And I live in a fallen world, and having children means things can happen. Loving people means they can leave you. Being alive means you can die. You know, we live in a broken world where bad things happen to us all. Um, and, but it does, it does truly enlarge our heart. But back to what Randy said, another piece to this is, you know, there, um, there, where there really is only one person good. There's only one person that's ever been truly good. And the very worst happened to him. And that's Jesus for us. And so that helps me, too, to look and say, okay, if... If God can bring salvation out of evil happening to absolute goodness, Jesus, then wow, what is he going to do with my suffering, my lesser suffering? So it doesn't make sense in our world. We want everything to be fair and everything to be just and bad guys to get what they deserve and good, good guys to get what they deserve. And we can trust that God is doing something we cannot see when the scales seem incredibly tipped. Because the other side of that question is, why is evil prevailing? Which the psalmist asks all the time. So coming back to the trust in the character of God because of, this, because of him willing to give his son. Are you going to say something, Max? 
I was just, I was thinking about this when Randy was talking about uh, Genesis earlier. Of you know, a detail I always find interesting. Well, one, you know, he talks about um, speaking about the, kind of the curse for Adam. You know, that um, speaking about the serpent that uh, he'll bruise your heel and you'll crush his head. And um, <clears throat> some people they've called that the proto evangelion. Is that right? which is like the first gospel, the glimpse of the gospel at the very beginning, you know, is that this man, this son of Adam is going to be wounded, but that this decisive blow will be struck against the source of evil and it will be overcome. And when you fast forward right to the end to the book of Revelation, we see the fulfillment of God's promise, right? And death being done away with, being cast into this pit of fire. Jesus saying, I have the keys to death and Hades. And we see the, the culmination of this war that has been decisively won through the work of Jesus Christ. But we're waiting for that. And I think that's the pain that we feel. That's the why we feel is we're waiting, you know? And we're and we left wait with the uniquely question. Because we right. wait with a Savior who knows, right? Yeah. And I think that that's why the church throughout history has prayed, come Lord Jesus, you know, um, drawing him to return, you know, to what he accomplished in the cross, right, of that we live in, in the light of that hope of what he's done. Um, he's given us this answer we can cling to, and then he promises to fulfill his promise, you know, and I was thinking about God's answer to Job when he kind of like, after all the talk, he said, hey, you know, were you there when I, you know, formed the earth, you know, tell me, what, what was that like, right? And When the goat gives birth, yeah. <laughs> when I expanse the sky. And just great. kind of saying, like, in the end, Job, I'm God. You can't understand or know of, like, God, why haven't you brought it to a conclusion already? I think that that's the question. Like, suffering could be avoided if you would have just come back by now, you know? And then that's me wanting saved. to be God, you know, God, you know, sh show me the controls, show me the story, you know, like I want to understand. And God says, you never could because you're not me. You know, that the Bible tells us that God is holy. He's on a different, you know, before anything was, you know, my, my four-year-old was asking me like, who, who made God? You know, where did God come from? Who made him? You know, and in the beginning, just Genesis, I told her in the beginning, God, that's, that's it. You know, before the beginning, God was there, and there is no one like him, not only in his holiness and splendor and might, but in the depths of his compassion and his willingness to become nothing for us. I think my understanding as I look at scriptures is, is it's the fact that God is love that we do, are suffering in this world, because at the time of Adam and Eve, when they did bring sin into his world, he could have just annihilated the whole thing and ended it. But instead, in patience, in love, he put forth what he had always planned, a story of redemption. And that love is, is steadfast, it's faithful, it's abounding, and it's patient that none would perish. And so Peter talks about that God is not, not slow, as some understand slowness to be, but patient that none would perish. He continues to allow think, his world to continue to go in this place of destruction because he has more that he is redeeming. And so it's actually his love that keeps him from ending all things and ending evil because there's more that are still going to come to know him. So it's this interesting aspect of love that when we, when we truly love, sometimes that will have to include waiting and patience. I don't know if that's helpful. At this point, I was going to close up real quick too with this idea that um, you know, there, there is suffering in this world. There is hardship. And again, we're going back to, that's the reality that we face. And we, talk, we call it, you mean, you've probably heard it, the problem of evil. That's the kind of what philosophers, theologians, they wrestle with the problem of evil. And it's going to be hard to like, just give it like, here it is concisely. Here's, here's what it is. Like, don't worry. Here's what evil comes in. But the reality is what we have is the story of salvation, the story of redemption, the story of eternal life, the offer of grace and forgiveness and all these things. And I feel like at there's times where, again, like kind of where I started tonight too, just to rem like remembrance and all these things, every, everything we do at some point, when we make those decisions, when we decide to step over a line, when we decide to do 
to follow Jesus, to believe in something. It's going to take an act of faith. And there's such a limit. You've seen this. Like, if we had these apologetics, these kind of arguments for the faith that nailed down, I could just hand you all a pamphlet. Here's a couple of questions. You got questions. Here's some answers. It's done. But no, like the theologians, philosophers, we've been debating this, thinking about it, trying to describe it for hundreds, thousands of years. And ultimately, not to avoid the question, but just to acknowledge that maybe we're not going to be able to answer it fully and to everyone's satisfaction. Um, I am always reminded of the goodness of the Lord, that he came down, he suffered as we suffered, he bore what we could, should have borne and could not bear on our own for our sake, that we might have forgiveness and life. And there's a part of that, like being present with people in their suffering, being close to them, mourning with those who mourn, weeping with those who weep, being close to like reminding and just being God, God embodied presence with people, like being close to the brokenhearted. So it's a great question and one that there's all these different answers kind of angles towards, but remembering the redemptive history of God and his purposes, that he actually has a purpose for suffering can be helpful. And we'd love to, again, we may want to have even more discussion, like come talk to us afterwards too. And definitely check out that resource. I think you would love um, the way he does a slow work through, and he, he Keller really does address that particular aspect. Yeah. Thank you. Well. So uh, I'm uh, old. I remember being young once a long time ago. And, uh, but I'm reminded that there are a couple of people here who have served in youth ministry, and, and Max is currently with the college students. And I had, had many years of experience with college students, and I'm wondering what, how they relate to this question. Oh, there are all these religions, you know, you're telling me about this one, or I believe in this one already, or my parents do, why do I have to? I've got all these professors telling me something else. How do they relate to this question? Yeah, you know, I think um, maybe just a little history of my ministry, you know, I think in kind of the current makeup of what we do, um, we have a lot of, I inherited a lot of incredible young people who kind of came up through the ministry of Three Crosses and um, um, just have this strong faith and I've been able to kind of encourage them in that. And an area where we're looking to kind of expand more is, is like campus ministry. And this is kind of my soapbox a little bit, but kind of having more of a presence like at Cal State East Bay. You know, since we're like, I mean, if you came down from there and just made a bunch of rights, you know, you could be here in 10 minutes. And um, more and more people are living there, thousands of students. This is kind of my, one of my passion things. But uh, it's been fun. They've invited us to kind of come on campus and, and table and say what we're about and the church. And um, I went to UC Davis for my college career. Any Aggies here today? Yeah, Aggies. Um, and uh, it was a secular university, you know, where people are just asking a lot of questions, you know, and there's just, what do I believe? What, what is life about? And um, kind of the, the way that Danny was asking it this last Sunday of just, it seems presumptive that, you know, one group of people could have all the answers. And what I appreciated about what Danny said, among other things, was that this isn't to say that you can only find truth in Christianity. You know, I appreciated that Danny made that distinction that you can find truth in a lot of other places and kind of like the, we are talking about Mormons earlier and the, he told the story about that gal who was like, I can't out-nice these people. You know, <laughs> like there's gonna have to be more to my witness because there's something of truth, of kindness that these people ha have captured in their belief system. And um, yeah, I just find one of the things that I really enjoy about um, this age group, you know, we talk about it as kind of like standing at the crossroads together. And it's really a time in life where you're just asking, what am I going to build my life upon, you know? And what is this foundation that's going to be able to hold me? And that's kind of where then the survey comes in. Like, okay, does this religious system, can this kind of be the foundation I build my life on? Can this be like the, the lens through which I view and make sense of the world, including great suffering, you know, that I see all around, you know, the headlines in my own family, in my own life. And um, 
this is kind of the, this final thread of what we were talking about, that young woman that I mentioned that uh, passed away from um, cancer at the age of 21, and I was her youth pastor. I was sitting with her, and, um, you know, I was, I, I was and am in the ministry, and I was sitting with her, and she was incredibly courageous, had an incredible faith. You know, we were, we'd be sitting at John Muir Hospital in Walnut Creek, you know, kind of late at night. I'd be sitting on her hospital bed, and she'd ask me, like, is this, is this real? You know, like, I'm, I'm, I want to be strong for my family, for the people around me, but is this really something I can be putting my hope in? Because I'm facing the end of my life, and if this isn't real, then have I wasted the few years that I had, you know? And that was very uh, soul-searching for me, even as a pastor, you know, because it's not just someone's asking a question in a forum, you know, I'm not responding to some internet comment or something. I'm sitting with somebody that trusts me, that loves me, and that I love them, and they're saying, can I put my hope in this? Is this something I can really put all of my weight on, you know? And even in the face of death and suffering, is this going to hold me? And um, I mean, this is kind of another apologetic thing, but for me, it just came back to, do I believe that Jesus rose from the dead? You know, was he just a teacher, had some good ideas, and was crucified by an oppressive government, and that was the end of it, or was there more? And if he truly did, then I could look in the face of this young woman and say, you can build your life on this. And um, so I think that that's, that's a question we're all asking, you know? But especially in young adult years, you know, you're coming out of your, you know, childhood and like, hey, here's what you should do. Here's what you should believe. And then and those at that time are asking, OK, what, what am I going to what do I believe? What am I going to build my life on? And in perhaps a survey of religion is a part of that. But in, in the end, it's always personal, kind of like what people were saying. Behind a question, there's there's a connection to something that's deeply meaningful, you know, because if we're talking about ultimate things. And there's nothing that makes us think more about ultimate things than our own demise, you know, the loss of something that we love. And, um, and so I think that that's really the question we're all asking, but perhaps it's more pointed and obvious in the age group that I, I do lead. And if I can just add to that, Max, um, to, the, to the point of can Christianity answer all of the complex questions of life? And can we put our faith in the answers that we get from, from this faith system? It all comes back to the resurrection, um, which validates the message that Christ brought, right? And which is unique to our faith. No other faith system can claim a resurrection of the one who is the founder of that faith system, right? Muhammad died, Buddha died, Joseph Smith died, Brigham Young died, Jesus Christ died but rose again. And as a result of that, that gives us um, an answer to the ultimate problem of life. The ultimate enemy of all of us is our death, our, as Max described it, our demise right? It's coming for every single one of us. It doesn't matter how much you exercise or if you're vegan or whatever, right? We are all going to be there. We're going to be six foot under someday. So Christianity, and I think for me, this is, this is what answers that question. Can one faith system have all the answers? Well, the only answer, the ultimate answer is the answer of, of death. What do you do with death? And Christ has answered that question. He is risen from the dead. And as a result of that, we put hope that the faith that we carry in our hearts is based on the reality of Christ's resurrection. And so that gives us the confidence and the strength, not the pleasure, but the confidence and the strength to meet life's suffering, right? We don't want it. We don't enjoy it. We don't look for it, but we experience it. And as we do, we do it with the confidence that our Lord has overcome the ultimate enemy of all of us. And so we can rest in that. Amen, everybody said, right? Um, I think the one thing I, I would, back to the humility question, 
of um, approaching people with humility and having a humble posture and care for others is that, yes, Christianity has the answer to the dilemma of life. Christianity has the answer to life after death. But there are many mysteries of life that even Christianity isn't going to answer. The secret things belong to the Lord and that we can be a humble people as we sit with others and they ask us questions we cannot answer. And that maybe the scriptures don't answer. Christianity is the answer to the ultimate questions. And along the way through life, we will, we will have people in our life exploring God. We will be exploring who God is. And there will be some things we will never have an answer for. I still don't know why my daughter is severely disabled. I will not know until all of eternity. Christianity isn't giving me an answer, but it is solving the problem of it. And that's a big distinction. So I think we want, don't want to oversell that Christianity is going to answer every question you have. It's going to answer the questions that matter most. It's going to answer the question of who is God? Who am I? And what is God doing about that? You know, the fact that he is holy and just and perfect and I am not. And that's the ultimate question. But I think we can be humble that there's going to be some things we may say to somebody, I'll see if I can find an answer. And we actually even have to come back and say, I don't know that we have one for that. That's where faith comes back in, that leap of faith. So we can, but we can be humble and winsome because we have Jesus. Amen. Amen.